Friends, God is at work in His church, and He works through the preaching of His Word. And God often works it out so that churches wind up having extremely timely sermons. I remember a few years ago uh, hearing about the preaching schedule for the year 2001 at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. They put their schedule together pretty early in the year, long before 9-11 happened, but it just so happened that the week before and after 9-11, they were preaching on the book of Habakkuk about how to face disaster with questions and confidence. They then had a full series in the Psalms about peace, justice, security, forgiveness, salvation, faith, truth, and wisdom. And they finished the year preaching about revelation, the future, and the sovereignty of God. See, God knows what's going to happen long before His people know about it. And God providentially works through the church to make sure God's people hear what they need to hear when they need to hear it. And so I don't think it's accidental that this week in which we're sitting in a room without electricity as a result of conflict between other people, that we come to a text in which Jesus speaks to us about how to respond when other people wrong us. Now, today's sermon is not going to be about our building. Although I think the principles that we're going to talk about are principles that we should employ when we interact with our neighbors or with our landlord. But today we're going to discuss principles that we all have to employ throughout our lives because we all suffer unjust wrongs. Jesus suffered unjust wrongs. His apostles suffered unjust wrongs. His followers, likewise, will suffer unjust wrongs. And friends, many, if not most of us, have experienced this at some point in our lives. We will be wronged by hateful enemies, by misguided believers, by uh, agents of the state, by accident. We will suffer wrong. But when we suffer wrong, how do we respond? And what we'll see today is that we must not respond, if we are the people of God, with vengefulness or vindictiveness. We should not respond from a posture of aggressive self-assertion, demanding what is rightfully ours. Rather, Jesus' disciples are to be people who are willing to forego our rights in pursuit of peace and reconciliation and who thereby give a good testimony for Jesus. We're going to see this in next week's passage. We're actually going to go further than this in next week's passage when we're told to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But today's passage is really about revenge and retaliation. And what we're going to see today is what Jesus has to say about these subjects in his Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. As once more, Jesus talks about the Old Testament law as it was understood in his day, as he once more authoritatively demonstrates that the way his contemporaries understood the law was incorrect, and as he articulates a new ethic once more for his disciples to obey. And we're going to see this today across two points. First, we're going to see that Jesus quotes a part of the Old Testament law that required the judicial practice of retribution, and then second, Jesus is going to give a series of examples in which he rejects the idea of interpersonal retribution. Let's start with our first point in which Jesus quotes a part of the Old Testament law that required the judicial practice of retribution. Matthew 5.38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. As he's done throughout this chapter, Jesus begins with a quotation. And here he's quoting from the Old Testament law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
This is a very famous statement, is it not? And while this statement is famous for being one of the essential parts of the Old Testament law, it's actually an older statement than even the law. About 300 years before God gave Moses the law, there was a Babylonian king named Hammurabi. And Hammurabi is remembered because he enacted one of the earliest law codes in world history. And Hammurabi's code said these words, If a man destroy the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one break a man's bone, they shall break his bone. If a man knock out a tooth of a man of his own rank, they shall knock out his tooth. Now, this is an approach to criminal justice that emphasizes two values. First, the value of retribution, of avenging wrongdoing. And second, the value of reciprocity ensuring that whatever penalty you receive is directly related to and is proportionate to the crime that you committed. You take an eye, you lose an eye. You break a bone, you have a bone broken. You kill, you are killed. And legal scholars have come up with a term for this sort of justice, an eye for an eye justice. They call it lex talionis, which in Latin means the law of retaliation. What you do to someone else, it will be done to you. Now, lex talionis is very different than the way criminal justice is administered in our time, is it not? I think most contemporary discussions about criminal justice focus on very different values than the values behind lex talionis. Many people today think that the consequences of lawbreaking should be about rehabilitating criminal offenders to make them productive law-abiding citizens in the future. Other people today say that criminal penalties should be about reducing recidivism Recidivism is a fancy word meaning to commit another crime. And people in this camp say if criminal penalties are too lenient, offenders will get out and commit more crimes. And what I want you to see is that these two values of rehabilitation or reducing recidivism, these values which drive the discourse about criminal justice today are radically different than the values behind Lex Talionis. Because the values we talk about today are about the future. What will this criminal do going forward? But the principle of an eye for an eye only looks backward. Its only concern is what did you do in the past and avenging your past crime in direct proportion to what you've done. So Lex Talionis was part of Hammurabi's code. And Hammurabi's code became very famous in the ancient Near East. So three centuries later, when God gave his law to Moses, God pointed Moses to this same concept of Lex Talionis. God is basically saying to Moses, this same criminal uh, justice principle which is popular in your society, this is the principle which is to be employed among my people. Justice will be administered on the basis of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this is spelled out in three sections of the Mosaic Law. Its most general application is in Leviticus 24 verse 17 where we read these words. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This is the basic principle for interpersonal harm under the law. From assault to murder, as you do, it will be done to you. We find, this, find the same principle in a more specific context in Exodus 21. 
The context is given in verse 22. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman. So a pregnant woman is struck. And then verse 22 says, if the injury causes her to give birth and she and her child wind up being healthy, then the man who struck her will be fined. But, verse 23, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a pregnant woman is harmed, or if her unborn child is harmed, God required lex talionis. The person who caused the injury must himself receive the same injury, up to and including his losing his life. Now, friends, notice that God applies this same principle to harm inflicted on an unborn child. This is a very important passage that shows that God cares deeply about the life of the unborn as being equal to the life of those who have been born. God cares for all human life in and out of the womb. And we see that in the way God applies lex talionis to avenge the unborn. Third, we find this same principle in another context in Deuteronomy 19. Context is specified in verse 15. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. All right, now I know you guys probably don't get excited about this, but I went to law school, so I like this stuff. This is a passage about criminal procedure. This is the threshold of evidence necessary to convict somebody. Right? If you're in ancient Israel, you can't prove your case by looking at a video camera or doing a DNA swab. You had to have multiple witnesses. So being a witness in a criminal case was really important. But what if you could stand witness in a case for somebody you really didn't like, and you said, I, this is my chance to get him. I'm going to incriminate this guy wrongly. God said in Deuteronomy 19.16, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. If you perjured yourself to incriminate an innocent person, you became liable for the crime you wanted to frame the other person for. And you would pay the sentence you wanted that innocent person to face no matter what the sentence was. Verse 21 says it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is a much severer and more just penalty for perjury than we have in our system. Why did God require this? Well, God gives three reasons in Deuteronomy 19. First, in verse 19, He says, So you shall purge the evil from Israel. See, God's people were to be holy in the Old Testament and new. Sin had to be purged. Second, verse 20 says, So the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. God required this severe penalty to deter people from committing perjury, to protect the integrity of the criminal justice system. But third, and most important for our purposes, verse 21, God says, Your eye shall not pity. I've heard people talk about this principle of eye for an eye justice before, and they'll say, well, God enacted this to protect people from getting too vindictive in avenging themselves. So, you know, I lose an eye. I don't just take your eye. I take both eyes, right? Or I take your life. And, and that this law was about protecting against that. Maybe. But what the Bible actually says in verse 21 about why God required lex talionis was that God was concerned society would be unduly lax in avenging crime, not unduly vengeful. God knew that humans have a propensity to excuse sin, 
to cover up evil, and to neglect justice. But God is infinitely just, and so he required an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. All right, so lex talionis was a very important criminal principle in ancient Israel. Well, we come now to our second point. And here Jesus is going to talk about lex talionis, and what he's going to say might surprise us. Because Jesus isn't going to talk about criminal justice at all. Instead, Jesus is going to talk about a principle for interpersonal relationships, a principle that forbids revenge. And he's going to explain his principle through a series of examples. So we just saw Jesus quoted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But as we keep reading in verse 39, now Jesus says, But I say to you, and once again, Jesus makes this astonishing claim, God at Sinai in his law said, A, but I on this mountain tell you B. It's an amazing claim of authority. A claim only Jesus can make because he is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the old covenant and the old law. He is the authoritative interpreter of the law. And he is the founder of the new covenant. And this is all proved by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus can say this, and he does. But when Jesus says here, but I say to you, a lot of interpreters immediately jump the gun. And they assume the conclusion that they think Jesus is going to draw without actually reading what Jesus says in the following verses. They just make a big assumption. They say, well, Jesus is rejecting the old law here. He's rejecting an eye for an eye. And so they conclude this means Jesus says criminal justice should no longer be about retribution or reciprocity, that we should abolish harsh criminal penalties in our society. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. And I tell you that for two reasons. First, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with the full authority of Christ behind him, says that harsh criminal penalties, including the death penalty, are sometimes warranted. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. If you do wrong, be afraid, for the ruler does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Even in the New Testament, the state is still to avenge wrongdoing. It is God's instrument of wrath in this world to give a warning, a prefigurement of the wrath which is to come, which the unrepentant will face in the, in the, in the world to come. And so Paul describes the state's vengeance here upon the wrongdoer, and he does it talking about a sword. And that is indicative of capital punishment. So the New Testament is not saying that death penalty or that harsh criminal penalty should be abolished. That's wrong. The second reason I think we shouldn't adopt this as an interpretation is that as we keep reading, like I've said, Jesus is going to give us some examples. And none of Jesus' examples talk about the way that an eye for an eye was applied in the Old Testament. None of the examples have to do with the criminal justice setting. So what Jesus is opposing in verse 39 is not the law as it was written or applied in the Old Testament. Say, so, okay, well, what is Jesus opposing then? Well, from the examples we're about to read, I think we can piece together the situation. The Old Testament said in a criminal context, an eye for an eye. But as time went on, people began to apply this principle in their own lives. Not as a principle of justice, but as an interpersonal principle. You wronged me? I want revenge. Not the state, me. I'm going to take what's mine, and I'm going to take it from you. And it's this that Jesus rejects here. The twisting of this statute into a justification for interpersonal revenge. And Jesus rejects this false interpretation first 
with a general principle. Look at verse 39. He says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So what's that mean? Well, this is a command to Jesus' disciples and therefore to all believers. And this command is about our relationship to the one who is evil. Now, this is not talking about Satan, and we know that from the examples Jesus gives. Jesus, whoa, Jesus is talking about how believers should respond to other people, to unbelievers or to believers who are mired in sin. And the examples that Jesus gives here indicate that the one who is evil specifically is somebody who wants to do evil against you. So someone wants to do evil to us. How should we react? That's the question. Jesus says, don't resist him or her. Well, what's he mean? Well, let's keep reading and let's let Jesus explain it to us because over the next verses, he's going to give us four examples of this principle of non-resistance. So let's read and think about these examples and then we'll draw some conclusions. We start with Jesus' first example. And here we come to one of the most well-known sayings of Jesus. Even in our society, it doesn't know much about the Bible. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You ever been slapped? It's not a fun experience. Not because it hurts. It's not a very painful blow. But it's a personal insult, right? That's true in Western society. And it was true in Jesus' day. Many interpreters have pointed out here that most people are right-handed. And so to receive a slap to your right cheek from a right-handed person means they would have to be slapping you with the back of their hand. And that was considered even more insulting than a slap with the front of the hand. The Pharisees said if somebody slapped you, they had to pay a fine. But if they slapped you with the back of their hand, they had to pay double. So Jesus is talking about suffering and insult, a dishonor. And yet, this verb sometimes means more than a slap. The Greek word here is actually derived from the word meaning a club that you could beat somebody with. And in chapter 26 of this book, this same verb will be used to describe the beatings that Jesus took at the hands of his torturers. And so it's fair to say here that Jesus is describing a blow to one's honor and also a blow to one's body. So, how should we respond when an evil person insults us, besmirches our reputation, or even hits us? Imagine it. Here in church, somebody comes up and slaps you. Or maybe they curse you, or they throw a drink in your face. They insult you, and there are other people around watching this. How do you want to respond? What is this trigger in you? A desire for retaliation, right? Because the slap isn't just an insult. It is an invitation to escalate matters. Let's go outside and brawl, right? That's our natural response. But Jesus here commands a different response for his disciples. Instead of returning an insult for an insult, or a slap for a slap, or a punch for a slap, Jesus says, turn your left cheek to the evildoer. Don't start a war of words. Don't fist fight. Those things are not consistent with the kingdom of God. They are not how the people of God are to conduct themselves. Instead, we're to take the insult. And in fact, by turning the other cheek, we are saying to our aggressor, I'll take that again. Wow. Why would anybody do this? Why would Jesus command this? Well, I think there are three reasons. First, this sort of a response exposes the evildoer. If you see somebody slap somebody else, everybody around is going to get excited because they think they're going to get to see some free entertainment, right? But if you get slapped and you, instead of retaliating, you offer vulnerability, you're going to make the aggressor look pretty bad. 
you're going to draw attention to his misconduct. And he's going to look even worse if he continues to malign or aggress against you when you show you're not going to respond. So turning the other cheek exposes the evildoer's sin. Second, it de-escalates things. The slap says, let's fight. But to say, I'll take the slap again, doesn't escalate things. It keeps them at the same level. In fact, some commentators have pointed out that if the slap to the right cheek is a backhanded blow, which is really insulting, turning the left cheek invites a normal blow, which is less insulting. So this is actually de-escalating this tense situation. Third, this response of turning the other cheek is so contrary to the natural response we would have to this. I think it offers a powerful testimony to how Jesus has transformed our lives. It shows that we're not following the wisdom of this world, which James 3 says is disorderly. Instead, it shows that we are reflecting the Lord by following wisdom which is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits. This non-retaliatory response points to Christ. And so Jesus says, don't resist the evildoer. Don't retaliate when you suffer an insult. Offer to take the insult again, to de-escalate things, to expose the sin, and to glorify Christ. And this is very similar to what Paul says in Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give not to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Likewise, Peter says, 1 Peter 3, 9, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Don't retaliate. In fact, we're to love our enemies and bless those who hate us. We'll talk about that more next week. But responding to an insult with non-retaliation is following our great example, Jesus. Because in 1 Peter 2, we're reminded that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Jesus got hit, but he didn't hit back. He didn't call for angels to descend from heaven and destroy his enemies. He didn't speak a word and disintegrate them. He endured it, and he referred the matter to the Father to whom the right of vengeance ultimately and solely belongs. Now before we move on, there are two significant practical questions that often come up when we talk about this verse, and we've got to answer them. Number one, does this verse mean that we should allow our reputations to be endlessly insulted without a response? Does this mean we should let other people wrong us over and over again with impunity? And we never set the record straight. No. And we know that's the answer because we have the writings of the Apostle Paul, who was slandered and maligned by false teachers. And Paul wrote to defend himself. We see this in 1 Corinthians 4, in 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, and in 1 Thessalonians 2. Friends, Jesus is not calling us to be a doormat, allowing us to just be ourselves to be just be endlessly victimized without a response. We see this in John 18. Jesus is on trial, he is standing silent in his own defense. The high priest says, why won't you speak up? And Jesus gives him an answer. And the guard doesn't like it. John 18, 22. And one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness against me about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus is wrongly slapped. And what does he do? 
He doesn't retaliate with insults or actions, but he does call attention to the injustice of the blow. In the same way in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are arrested, and contrary to Roman law, they're beaten without having been convicted. They're put in jail for a night, and the next morning the city leaders want them to leave town quietly. But Paul said to them in Acts 16.37, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and they've thrown us in prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. Paul points out he has suffered injustice. He says, I demand redress, and he gets the apology that he deserves. So in verse 39, Jesus is not saying what Humphrey Bogart said in the Maltese Falcon. When you're slapped, you'll take it and like it. No. We should expose injustice and wrongs when we experience them. But we should not avenge them. That's the idea. Now let's talk about a second practical matter here. Is self-defense wrong? If someone invades your home or threatens your life or your family, should you just take it? If they hurt one kid, should you give them another one? If they shoot you in the right part of your body, should you turn to them the left? I've known people who have adopted this position. They'll say this means, turn the other cheek means, Christians shouldn't own firearms, Christians shouldn't resist if someone hurts them. And I'll say this, I appreciate these people's desire to take this instruction seriously, but I think they've missed a few things. Yes, the word slap can mean a violent blow, but most of the time it just means a slap. And so Jesus here has deliberately built his example around a confrontation in which the real physical risk to a believer is pretty minimal. He didn't say if someone swings a sword at your right cheek, turn to them the other. He deliberately uses a relatively nonviolent example. So I think it's dangerous to apply this verse to life and death contexts. That would be taking this verse out of its context. Moreover, in Luke 22, Jesus is talking to his disciples about a period of time which will soon begin after he ascends into heaven and they're on their own. And he says to them, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Jesus tells his disciples, you guys are going to need some swords. Why? To defend themselves. Now, people who take the other position here will say, yes, that's true, but Jesus rebuked Peter when Peter actually swung a sword in Gethsemane in Jesus' defense, and that's true. But Jesus' comment that all who take the sword will perish by the sword is not a prohibition on self-defense. It is a warning about being quick to resort to weaponry. Indeed, the Bible shows us other ways to avoid being physically endangered than just reaching for a weapon. Think about in the Gospels and Acts. Repeatedly, Jesus and his disciples, when they see things are getting intense around them, they just leave. Say, I don't want to be involved in a dangerous situation. I'm going to leave. It's not the right time. Friends, if you can't avoid danger, do it. I'm not saying be quick to pull a gun. But I am saying that I think Christians are permitted and obligated to defend themselves and others when they have no other option and their lives are threatened. I don't see how else we can interpret Jesus' instruction about buying swords. But in the overwhelming majority of situations we're in, the injuries we suffer are not life-threatening. It's a wound to our pride, maybe at the most a broken nose. And when that is the case, it's not time to think about self-defense. Friends, when we suffer indignity, we're not to retaliate. We are to turn the other cheek. And that's the first and longest example Jesus gives. We find the second example in verse 40. Jesus says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
Now Jesus paints a different scene. The evildoer is not striking the believer. He is suing, or at least he wants to sue the believer. We're not told anything about the legitimacy of his complaint. What Jesus does focus on is that the evildoer wants to take the believer's tunic. Now in the ancient world, people basically wore three layers. They wore a loincloth for underwear. Over that they wore a tunic. And over that they wore a heavy cloak, which could be used as a blanket on a cold night. And Jesus says, someone is suing you, and they hope to take everything you have. They even want to get the tunic off your back. What should you do? You go hire the best defense team you can for a long trial? You put out a press release? Jesus says, no. He says, give him your tunic and give him your heavy cloak too. Now, this heavy cloak was an important part of ancient people's clothing. It was so important, it was actually protected in the Old Testament law. Exodus 22 says, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his own body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear and I will be compassionate. See, God who avenges the exploited poor says, You get to keep your cloak. But now Jesus says, if somebody sues you and they want to take your tunic, give them that and even give them that heavy cloak that God says they have no right to take from you. Now, what is going on here? Well, again, I think there are three ideas behind this instruction. Number one, the evildoer is out for vengeance, right? He doesn't just want money. He wants to destroy the believer. This is scorched earth, total war type stuff. How should the believer respond? Jesus says the believer should give the evildoer more than the evildoer is legally entitled to. Why? Well, again, I think this exposes the evil and the injustice of his demand. You want everything I have? Fine. You can have it. You can even have what God says you have no right to. If you want to humiliate me so much that I'm left naked, fine. If you want everything I have, it's yours. See, when someone adopts this posture of vulnerability, they expose how unreasonably demanding their adversary is being. This exposes the plaintiff as a vengeful, wicked person. Second, again, Jesus' instruction here de-escalates the situation. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus said in verse 25, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Jesus says, if you realize you've wronged someone and they want to take you to court, go settle with them before you wind up in court. And here we find the same idea. The evildoer wants to go to court. You're not there yet. How should the believer respond? The believer should do what he can to settle the matter quickly, even if it means parting with more than he otherwise should have to. Go beyond what the law requires to resolve your interpersonal conflict. And why? Well, again, because this offers a testimony to Christ. This says, I trust my fate to the Lord, not to my ability to clutch my possessions. And this reminds us of the grace of Christ, who was so exceedingly gracious to his enemies, to you and me, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so also we should be gracious to our enemies. I know this is a tough example for Americans. Americans have always been obsessed with lawsuits, even back to colonial days. The idea of settling with an enemy is a tough pill to swallow. Uh, even more so, showing vulnerability to an adversary, giving them more than they're entitled to. That is repulsive to most of us. I've got to say, as somebody who used to practice law, this is not the sort of advice attorneys usually give their clients, right? 
Attorneys say, stand up for your rights. Go to the mat to defend yourself. Basically the opposite of what Jesus says here. Now, again, I think we've got to ask two practical questions about this example. Number one, is Jesus saying it's always wrong to assert your rights or to go to court? No. We saw earlier Paul stood up for his rights in Acts 16. Think about Acts 25. Paul's on trial. He appeals to Caesar. There is a time and a place to assert your rights, to defend yourself from the state oppressing you or from the state persecuting Christians for preaching the gospel. That's what Paul was dealing with. But Jesus' example isn't about the state oppressing someone or oppressing the faith. Jesus' example is about interpersonal conflict, which is on the verge of going to court. And in such cases where there is bad blood between people, Jesus tells us believing friends, it's on us to go settle the dispute. Even if it means parting with property that we greatly value. Because solving interpersonal conflict is more important than our, us keeping our stuff. And because our fate is ultimately in the Lord's hands, it's not in our ability to, to retain our wealth. In this sort of a case, we are to settle quickly and graciously. Now a second question. Is Jesus actually commanding us that any time someone threatens to sue us, no matter how frivolous or baseless their claim is, that we should immediately offer to give them everything that we have? Of course not. Because if for no other reason, that would compel us to violate other biblical commands about providing for our families and stewarding the wealth that we have well. The point here is not that we apply this particular example literalistically in every situation involving the threat of a lawsuit. The point is Jesus is telling you and me there are more important things than us asserting our rights and defending ourselves and pressing our claims to the farthest extent possible. Instead, Jesus wants us to prioritize resolving conflicts, fixing relationships, and maintaining a good testimony before unbelievers by showing grace and kindness to people who want to destroy us by giving them even more than they're entitled to, by helping those who want to harm us. And I know this is against all of our instincts, but friends, our instincts are fallen. Sometimes the believer is to do what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, which is to say, is it not better to suffer wrong than to do something that would expose me and the gospel to public disrepute? Instead, we must recognize that as Jesus' people, sometimes we have to be like Jesus who chose to suffer unjustly. So that's the second example. Settle out of court, concede more than the law would allow to resolve a grudge. We find the third example in verse 41. Jesus says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now what Jesus is talking about here is a practice that his audience would be familiar with, but that we are not familiar with. And this is the practice of impressment. Now impressment is not about being impressive. Impressment means that people were pressed into service against their will. First century Judea was a militarily occupied region. The Romans were in charge and Roman legionnaires were everywhere. And because of Rome's power and presence, the Jews hated the Romans. I'm not sure that we can really grasp what this is like here in the U.S. because we're not a conquered people under the boot of a foreign oppressor. Most of us can't relate to that. But history tells us that those who are in this kind of situation usually start really, really, really hating their invading oppressor. And one of the things that first century Jews hated most about the Romans was this practice of impressment. What would happen is, as the legionnaires would march around, they would grab civilians and they would compel the civilian to carry a heavy burden that the legionnaire was carrying. So, I'm not going to carry this. You civilian, you carry it. 
And there was no way out of it. There was no appeal. You just had to do it. There's a famous example of this in the Bible, right? Simon of Cyrene was just hanging out in Jerusalem at Passover. And suddenly a Roman soldier grabbed him and he had to go in the street and carry Jesus' cross to Golgotha. That's an example of impressment. Now, Roman law allowed legionaries to impress civilians to carry a burden for one mile. And you know, every step that an impressed person was taking, lugging that heavy burden from the soldier, they were thinking, I hate this, I hate you, I hate Rome. Things like impressment just rubbed salt in the wound of the Jews. And so some of the Jews decided to respond. They formed a political party, like the Pharisees and Sadducees. They formed the party of the Zealots. And the Zealots said, let's get rid of Rome. And some of the Zealots became terrorists. They were called the Sicarii, because they carried a knife called a Sicarius up their sleeve. And at big public gatherings, they'd pull it out and kill Roman officials. So the question is, how should a believer respond to the humiliation and indignity of being impressed by a Roman soldier? Should they nurse hatred in their hearts and go sign up with the Zealots? Should they plan violence against the government they loathed and become Sicarii? Jesus says, no. He says, if a soldier impresses you, don't just carry his luggage one mile, carry it another without even being asked to do so. Now, carrying somebody else's stuff is not fun, even if it's your friend's stuff, right? Most of us don't sign up for that unless we have a house guest. We have to carry their luggage in, right? But to carry the load of a foreign occupier, an enemy, someone who is forcing this evil on you, and to go an extra mile for them, wow. But that's what Jesus says. If they want to insult you, be helpful to them. If they want to crush you, be kind to them. Don't retaliate with hostility. Don't plan revenge. Lovingly and sincerely go beyond what is being asked of you. And yes, I know this is a hard instruction for us to receive. But why does Jesus, our Lord, who we must obey, say this? Because this creates a good witness for Christ, doesn't it? Yeah, the Romans knew the people they impressed hated them. That's so why they did it, to grind them into the dirt. But imagine being a legionnaire and you've just impressed this person and they say, hey, I volunteer to go another mile for you. That would unnerve the soldier, wouldn't it? And make them think, who is this person and why are they volunteering for this? That creates a good opportunity for what Jesus said in verse 16. For others to see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So instead of being hostile to an evil government, Jesus says, render kind service to those who mean no kindness to you. Second, this act of volunteering would serve to expose the evil of the legionnaire's actions. The legionnaire wants to be cruel, but seeing someone respond to his cruelty with love will expose the evil of his heart. And third, Jesus' instruction diffuses a temptation to sin. Jesus is telling us to forego hate and vengeance, which would normally follow an interaction like this, the desire to sign up with the zealots or the sicaria. By just telling us instead lovingly serve instead of seeking revenge, Jesus is diffusing the situation. And so Jesus says, kindly serve a governmental official who makes an unreasonable demand by rendering more service than he's entitled to. Now these first three examples are pretty clear. When someone is trying to wrong you, when you get slapped or insulted, when somebody wants to sue you to your last penny, when you're dealing with an overbearing governmental official, don't retaliate. Don't return evil for evil. Don't figure out how to get that eye or tooth for the indignity you suffer. Don't seek vengeance. Instead, offer more than what your adversary expects, something more than they are entitled to. Adopt a godly attitude which will expose their wrongdoing. 
act in such a way that de-escalates a situation which could easily erupt and offer a good testimony for Jesus. But the final example here, or really it's a pair of examples, is a bit more difficult to interpret because it seems different than the other examples. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All the previous examples deal with situations in which there is a temptation to revenge. But here there doesn't immediately seem to be a connection to revenge. Here Jesus just makes a really demanding statement. Whenever someone begs from you, give to them. Whenever someone would borrow from you, lend to them, period. Wow. Does this mean I have to give to every beggar I encounter? Every time? Whether they're legitimate or con men? I've known people who took this pretty literally, and safe to say they went through a lot of money pretty fast. Is this what Jesus is requiring? Forget stewardship and give it all away just because someone asks you? I think the answer is no. Because the Proverbs tell us we should be wise with the money God gives us. Because 1 Timothy 5 tells us to prioritize providing for our families. Because 2 Thessalonians 3 prohibits giving money to those who refuse to work. But more than all that, my answer is no because of the context of this passage. Remember our context. This is the last in a string of examples clarifying Jesus' principle, do not resist the one who is evil. In each of the previous examples, there was clearly an evildoer. Someone who slaps a believer to humiliate him. Someone who sues a believer to bankrupt him. Someone who impresses a believer into unjust service. Where is the evildoer here? Well, with this context, I think that we need to recognize Jesus isn't talking about just any person who begs or wants to borrow. He's again talking about an adversary. Someone who has wronged you or who wants to wrong you. Maybe they want to steal from you. I'm going to ask you for a loan and I'm never going to pay you back. Give me some money. I'm going to exploit you, sucker. Or maybe the situation is you find an old adversary is hurting. He needs help. Should you put your heel down and crush him? Should you laugh? Ha, God finally got him for me. No, Jesus says, no. Help your adversary. If they need money, give it. If they want to borrow from you, lend it. Expect not to get it back. Be generous even to your enemies. And friends, if you're willing to give and lend to an enemy... You should be willing to give and lend to a stranger. But again, I don't think this is an ultimatum about us having forced generosity every time we encounter a panhandler. The New Testament's ethic is God loves a cheerful giver. And that's true in the church. I think it's generally true, period. So when you find legitimate needs, as God lets you encounter situations where you can help, then be generous towards everybody, including your enemies, because this gives a good testimony for Jesus because it will expose to the evildoer the wrong he has done you, and because your kindness may escalate and even end the conflict you have with the evildoer. So be generous. I'm not saying that to the exclusion of the Bible's command to also be a wise steward of your money. Friends, these principles don't conflict. They work together. You must be wise, and you must also be generous, and so must I. But here Jesus is strongly emphasizing generosity, even to those who don't deserve it. All right, so we've seen Jesus' principle. We've seen his examples. Let's conclude now by summing all of this up. In the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a principle of criminal justice. But this principle was twisted by people who wanted a sinful justification for interpersonal revenge and aggressive self-assertion. 
But Jesus says, don't resist someone who wants to wrong you. Don't seek vengeance. Don't even insist on your own rights in response to their evil plans against you. Instead, be gracious. Show vulnerability. Don't clutch what you have. Trust yourself to the Lord. Act in faith and obedience. Expect the Lord to have your back and avenge the wrongs you suffer. And then, as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone and show kindness to all, especially your adversaries. I think that's the idea. And yes, Jesus does illustrate this idea using some demanding examples, which may make us uncomfortable. But that's the point. Yes, I know it's ingrained in us in the society to stand up for what's ours and to oppose our enemies. And we may read what Jesus says here and think, this is so impractical. If I follow this, I'm going to wind up a naked, broke sap who winds up being slapped all the time. But again, Jesus is not calling us to be doormats who are perpetually victimized. And if that's where our minds go right away when we read this, trying to find a loophole that lets us justify ignoring Jesus' instruction, we have missed the point. Which is we've got to stop being so into ourselves and our rights and our stuff and we need to adopt the priorities God cares about. About how we relate to others. About how we represent Christ before the world and even before our enemies. Be gracious to those who mean you harm and who have caused you harm. Bear the indignity because Jesus bore indignity. And trust the Lord because only he has the right to revenge. And because he faithfully has our backs, believing friends. So, when you wind up facing the prospect of being sinfully wronged, remember the three things that we saw in each of these examples. Number one, by your godly conduct, expose the sin. Don't slander, don't insult, don't lash out. Yes, speak the truth and call attention to the sin, but also be kinder, more gracious, and more generous than you think you ought to be. First, Paul put it in Romans 12.20, If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Respond to evil with love, and it will show your enemy he is in sin. That will irk him, yes, but it also might lead him to examine himself and do business with God. Second, de-escalate the situation. Do what you can to maintain peace and resolve conflicts. When you've got a choice between ratcheting things up and reducing the tension, opt for the de-escalating choice. And third, friends, do all that you can to maintain a good witness for Jesus because your enemies are watching you, because the world is watching you, and so conduct yourself in a way that glorifies Christ. And if you wonder what that means, just think about what Jesus did when he was opposed. He spoke the truth, but he did not insult out, or he did not insult, he did not lash out, he did not strike people. He endured, and he did so continually entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And may that be said of us as we encounter the injustices of this world.